You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Julia. I'm Ida. And I'm Kate. Dr. Megan Morikawa is the Global Sustainability Office Director at Bureaustar, where she leads the sustainability team in scientific-driven actions for a sustainable ocean economy and responsible tourism model. Megan serves as a trustee of the Travel Foundation, co-chair of the Tourism Action Coalition for Sustainable Ocean, and as co-chair of the World Economic Forum Global Futures Council on Sustainable Tourism. She also actively contributes to the UN, WTO, and UNEP Advisory Council for the One Planet Sustainable Tourism Network, the Planet Committee of the Sustainable Hospitality Alliance and a Sustainability Task Force of the World Travel and Tourism Council. Wow, Megan, you are a force. I am so impressed that you have the time to do all of those things and drive change and a sustainability transformation at Obirostar. Really excited to welcome you and to dig into that today. Fun fact, we met back in the wilds of Madagascar when we were both field assistants on a research project there. And I remember waking up early mornings together and going into the field and counting birds as part of a census and checking our FUSA traps to see if we'd caught FUSA so we could also understand the dynamics of the FUSA in the forest to help better conserve and protect them. So it's great to be here today having you on the podcast and learning about your journey from the jungles of Madagascar to the offices and coasts of a Bureau Star. So welcome. Thrilled to have you here today. It's great to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. I wonder if we could start with your origin story. I'm personally excited to have a PhD marine biologist on the podcast. I think I'm one of many people who in middle school had that as the dream career, and you study that as a PhD. So that's, first of all, exciting, but would love to, to hear more broadly just where your interest in natural climate solutions comes from and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, it's always really funny to think about how much our childhoods really do play a role. Well, if we're lucky, right, in what it is that we ultimately end up doing as careers. I grew up in San Diego, so close to the ocean, but the ocean really didn't play a major feature in my life until grad school. I got into the sciences because of an incredible biology high school teacher who basically told us that science could help us solve global issues and that the sky was the limit if we really put our minds to thinking innovatively about technology applications. So began that work in genetics, conservation genetics, did a trip to Tanzania, trip to Madagascar, thinking about how we could use this technology to help us conserve species. And I wanted to continue in the sciences, so I pursued a PhD at Stanford's Marine Station because that happened to be the spot where they were doing the best work, I thought, in genomics and how that could be used to help answer conservation challenges. And I have this distinct memory. I remember going and walking through the forests with Julia and Madagascar and other terrestrial field sites and uh, being, you know, really meaningful and wonderful experience. We went to American Samoa the first time, which is where I did my PhD, and we were about to do a transect. And turns out that when you're in the water, things float away from you. And it was like, oh, I guess I'm now in the ocean sciences because my pencil and my underwater pad of paper were floating away. So it's definitely a new and interesting challenge. But I have to say that once you enter into the ocean space, it hooks you in. And it's so charismatic. It's such an incredible set of ecosystems. 
in particular in coral reef ecosystems. So I was really thrilled and excited to be able to work on an ecosystem that was in so much threat and that could hopefully have a lot of these solutions. In the PhD itself, it was a very dramatic period of time. We had this whole big experiment to try and see if we could help restore coral reefs that were more resilient to climate change, set up this massive experiment of using genetic indicators and physiology indicators to see if we could predict the winners and losers of bleaching events, set them out in this big common garden experiment. And then we were going to go back a year later and retest the animals after being acclimated in their new environment for a year. But lo and behold, we had the massive global bleaching events of 2016, 2014, made for a very interesting experiment, but an incredibly devastating kind of period in my professional career to watch an ecosystem die before my eyes, right? Like we had massive bleaching that impacted the Great Barrier Reef, that impacted all of our sites in the Pacific. So it was really indicative to me that that this is very much a real issue that is impacting not only ecosystems, but the communities that depend on them. I mean, it was when I was finishing up the PhD when I had a fortuitous meeting with a family-owned business, the daughter of fourth-generation Spanish hospitality group Iberostar. Gloria Flusha was traveling the world to try and find a way to bring meaning to the company through the lens of the oceans. Their family that's from Majorca, an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and Gloria had always had a passion for the oceans. And so she came to Stanford looking for ways we could bring coral reef restoration to the hospitality setting. And I have a very distinct memory of a conversation that in five questions, I was convinced this is what I wanted to do in my next steps. First question was, look, I'm not here to greenwash. I'm here to just really understand how it is that hospitality and coral reef restoration could get along. So we got really into the weeds and details. And five questions later, she looked at me and she looked at my advisor and said, okay, I get there's a lot of challenges. So what are the barriers to being able to scale the solutions that you guys are clearly working to develop? And I remember thinking, you know, that sounds really obvious as a question you should be asking, but it's taken us as researchers 12 years to think about scaling of a lot of these technologies. And that's the beauty of the private sector interaction. Fast forward five years, we're now working on a much broader and more comprehensive program, but it's a very circuitous and fun way to be able to enter into the space of corporate social responsibility. That's fantastic, Megan. You have had such an incredible journey. We would love to hear a little bit more about in your role as a director of sustainability, what does that look like day to day? I think the big picture is very clear, but very curious what that entails tactically um, day to day. Yeah. So the concept of corporate social responsibility is, in the grand scheme of the business landscape, relatively young. There's not many people in the industry that have been in these roles for more than five, 10 years at best. And its definition can mean a broad set of things because it's environment, social, governance. It also includes diversity, equity, and inclusion, depending on the company. And so sometimes I like to say that ESG or CSR can be the impossible task of asking businesses to be better at everything that they've never, ever measured yesterday, right? Because we also know that businesses have huge impacts on society and the environment that need to be corrected. So for us at Iverostar, we are a hospitality group. We primarily have luxury resorts that are beachfront in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean. 
And the ocean is part of our product, but also the risks of climate change and impacts of hurricanes, extreme weather events, beach loss are a real risk to our business. So for us, this commitment to corporate social responsibility is realized through the ocean, through what began as what we were calling our wave of change movement, which we started when I joined the company and has a focus on a couple of different areas in climate action, in circular economy, in destination stewardship, in nature-based solutions, um, and in blue foods, because we also do a lot of work on seafood supply chains. The day-to-day is varied. It ranges from working to engage in solutions more broadly in the travel and tourism sector, in the private sector, per all of those really great alliances and opportunities to be able to bring lessons learned into a broader landscape. But a lot of what I do is very fortunate to lead a team. We're now 30, growing to 40 people this year, fully dedicated to implementing the ambitious strategy that we have, whether that be sending no waste to landfill across all of our operations by 2025 or having all nature that's around our properties and improving ecological health alongside the places we operate by 2030 and a suite of other of what we call our Agenda 2030 that's in line with the SDGs. So most of the time is spent managing teams and managing changes in behavior and changes in the way we do our business to be able to meet these objectives and ensure the long-term viability of our business through the protection and safeguarding of the ecosystem services that really do serve as the foundation of what our business is about. And I'm curious if you could be a little bit more specific or share us a little bit more details on how does your work intersect nature-based solutions specifically? Are you investing in these projects? Are you working with local communities, what does the nature-based solutions part of your work look like? And yeah, we'll stop there. Yeah, so the work that we do in nature-based solutions primarily is realized through two axes, one that focuses on climate mitigation and the other on climate adaptation. And these are under the umbrella of the work that we do in coastal health. But one of the things that I think is so important about a holistic sustainability strategy is that it becomes a little difficult to say when boundaries begin and end in any given strategy because it also has to do with inputs of nutrients or pollution, which has to do with circular economy and waste and impact and consumption in a lot of the destinations. But to kind of really focus on the nature-based solution side of things, we are focusing in our coastal health strategy five business cases, and two of them focus on risk reduction in the face of extreme weather events, beach loss or flooding. And then the other focuses on the nature-based compensation of the carbon footprint that we have as part of our objective to reach carbon neutrality by 2030. So I'll start with the latter. So in 2019, we estimated that our carbon footprint across our roughly 100 properties in 16 countries around the world was about 1 million metric tons of carbon equivalents. And what's interesting here is that we are a service provider, which means that our scope one and scope two, which are the direct emissions or the emissions that come from the electricity that we're consuming, are relatively small. In fact, they made up about 13% of our total carbon footprint. And most of our carbon footprint comes from our supply chain, food that we're purchasing, the materials that we're using for furniture, for constructions in the built environment. And so as a result, we have an SBTI validated decarbonization strategy to do our best to remove those emissions as much as possible. And that work that we were super excited to have launched at COP27 last year in Sharm el-Sheikh to provide the hospitality sector with a really ambitious decarbonization roadmap. 
focused on removing as much of the emissions from our scope one and scope two. We have a target to reduce our emissions 85% over the next eight years, which also includes really challenging things like adding renewable energy to places like the Dominican Republic or Jamaica or Tunisia that are still in the early phases of their renewable energy transition. But in order to decarbonize your carbon footprint in your supply chain, you really quickly come up to the hard to abate sectors that are part of your product and service. So you work on consumption, you work on reduction as much as possible. We have a target to reduce our scope three emissions by 50 percent by 2030. But still, with all of that decarbonization, we expect to have a sizable carbon footprint, around 96 percent of that coming just from our scope three by 2030. That would be around 400, 450,000 metric tons of emissions. And so we wanted to make sure that there was something that we could do to invest in, in nature positive strategies for a number of reasons. And so we have a commitment to invest in nature-based solutions as close to our destinations as possible to reach up to 500,000 metric tons of carbon sequestration by 2030, which we estimate to be probably around 22,000 hectares of protected land area. We're thinking about things like co-managements or payment for ecological services or even possibly land ownership as some of the ways to take on that work. And I could speak a little bit more about that in a moment. The other way in which we focus on nature-based solutions is on that climate adaptation side, right? Because no matter what we do on the mitigation, travel and tourism is a sizable contribution to global emissions. We expect travel and tourism to be about anywhere between 8 to 11% of global emissions. But still, there's so many impacts. We're disproportionately impacted industry, particularly in beachfront tourism. And so boosting adaptation and boosting resilience is an, a really important component of what we do. So this is where our work on coral reef ecosystems or dune ecosystems or mangroves or wetlands in our destination comes into play. And our coastal health team focuses on performing pretty comprehensive baseline assessments to understand what are the ecosystems and the services that they're providing in front of our properties, what's the relative risk, and then what are the adaptive measures that we can take to boost resilience in any of those given ecosystems. And this stuff is really scientifically challenging, right? Coming from the perspective of the PhD, you know, the goal is restoration in addition to solving climate change and boosting local conditions. But no one has yet really demonstrated at scale that it's possible to restore hectares of coral reef, right? And so we're thinking really critically about things like how do we boost the rugosity of the coral reef ecosystems in front of our properties? How do we work not only in restoration, but protections. We do work on establishing co-managed sanctuaries if fishing pressures are also another thing that are causing decline in those coral reef ecosystems. But the data is relatively clear that tells us that if you have a healthy and thriving coral reef, that coral reef is supposed to absorb up to 95% of the wave energy that comes from an extreme weather event before it hits the shoreline, right? So these healthy and thriving ecosystems are something that we want to do our best to be able to invest in and protect. There's certainly more that goes into how it is that we actually quantify that and take steps to think through scaled solutions in that perspective. But those are two of the more clear ways in which we're integrating nature-based solutions into our corporate strategy. Very quickly, what is rugosity? Could you define that for our listeners? Yeah, it's the roughness. This is coming from the marine science days, but there's all sorts of really great biophysics that demonstrates that thriving rough 
life-filled surfaces that are able to absorb some of the wave energy allow you to be able to reduce the total wave energy of extreme weather events, but also just chronic beach loss throughout. So you measure rugosity through either mapping it. So we do photo mosaics where we take two cameras and we swim transects and then run that through a computer modeling system to recreate 3D structures. And then we kind of get indices that tell us how rough the surface is in front of our properties. You can also do simple surveys where you take a chain and you run a transect and you measure how much chain it took for you to go lateral distance and it gives you a sense of the roughness of that ecosystem. And rugosity over space allows us to to get a good sense of a proxy of how much wave energy should be absorbed. We also do things like actually measure the direct wave height with wave height loggers that we have placed in a couple of locations. This is all very preliminary on, so but this is what we're trying to do to be able to actually see if we can measure impacts through the mitigative actions that we're taking. Amazing. Who knew we would get to, to discuss rugosity in such detail? Just to take a quick step back on the business case, obviously not every hospitality company is at this stage. And so I'm curious around what was that internal decision-making process around making these ambitious commitments around the SBTI alignment? Was this something that customers were asking for? Was it getting ahead of the market? Or was it something else driving these conversations? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I would say broadly, there are three general reasons why businesses are adopting CSR practices. Two of them much more commonly talked about than the third. First is consumer pressure. If you're a B2C company where you're selling a product directly to consumers or certainly signaling in the market that sustainability is important to them. We're seeing this in travel and tourism, particularly since 2020, where we've seen massive surveys that have demonstrated anywhere between 70 to 80 percent of consumers are interested in traveling more sustainably. And that's a really important market signal. But I think also here, it's you have to note too the business to business pressures too, that if you're part of a supply chain, you could see we have our objectives on decarbonizing our own supply chain. So businesses can talk to each other and put pressures on each other. And that's a really important way to also take action. You have regulation and it plays a very important role in Europe. There are a new set of regulations that are coming that will hopefully really catalyze a lot of the measurement and action around biodiversity and climate action for businesses to be reporting on and making improvements on. But the third area is because of the values of the company and a little bit of the brand equity, but for more sort of holistic experience. What is the kind of company that you're working for? Why are your employees there? And what are the values of the company in the market against your competitors? And this value-driven approach is, I think, what really allowed us at Iberostar to scale our strategy so quickly. So kind of two components to your question. The first would be that this was a journey that we took step by step, right? And I think that was really important for us was to take step by step, but to bite big bites every time, right? So we started this journey by saying, let's take a focus on plastics and can we remove straws from our operations? And I think it was a noble first step for us to be able to take. And it took us only about four months to be able to achieve that. And so once we got a taste of that, we said, all right, well, can we remove all single-use plastics from our operations? And there was enough of a taste and enthusiasm to to do this sort of work in a value-driven sort of way. And Then 18 months later, we had removed single-use plastics from our food services, our rooms, and it was really kind of demonstrative that 
in this process, you started to enter into some of these holistic questions on, well, if we choose to bring a glass water bottle instead of a plastic water bottle, what are the consequences of that? And so by taking this step by step, every single time we were able to ask more complex questions because it was really hard to tackle climate action when that wasn't where the company was ready at first, right? So these kind of step-by-step actions, I think, were really important. And as we gained momentum and were able to embrace more complexity based on the successes that we had early on, this is something that we were able to scale into the strategy that I was describing in Hearts Now. But the second component is, I would say, we think really critically about any of the actions that we take at Iberostar, ideally shouldn't be just because Iberostar has the values to do that. The values might allow us to take the first move and to try and figure out how it is that any of these actions could fit in a business context. But ultimately, none of the investments that we make in nature-based solutions are going to actually return those services unless we do this at a destination scale, right? If we're protecting the reefs in front of our properties, but our neighbors are not, it becomes an incredibly challenging investment to justify. So we think really broadly, too, about the business cases on why we think all coastal businesses should be thinking about adaptation or mitigation strategies. So, for example, we're working right now with Aura, which is a group that is bringing together insurance companies and and a number of really leading NGOs to think about ocean resilience and in coastal areas in a private sector context to see whether or not we can tackle property insurance. And in the same way that a business is able to pay less for fire insurance if they have protocols that make sure there are enough fire extinguishers and that they're training their people, can we do the same thing for property insurance in the face of extreme weather events? Because these insurance prices, as I'm sure you can imagine, are skyrocketing. Properties are becoming more and more difficult to insure. And insurance companies also have the incentives to say, Is there something that we can be doing to make sure that there's long-term viability in these locations? It's a really tricky thing to bring into reality, but we see that as a pathway that says if all businesses, in order to reduce their premiums, could invest in nature-based solutions to be able to gain those reductions in their premiums, could that be a financial mechanism to scale some of these solutions? So we think a lot about a lot of these components, which is why our work on coral reefs or dunes or wetlands is so focused on the adaptation side of things, because if it ultimately doesn't boost resilience, then it becomes hard to justify under the scope of that business case. So we think a lot about how it is that any of those actions can scale across the industry as well. That's so interesting and incredibly thoughtful approach, because I think so many of the things that you're talking about are fundamentally collective action issues. And so it sounds like you guys have developed quite a sophisticated playbook for influencing and collaborating with other folks who are also impacted. Given that these issues for any of the nature-based solutions or the supply chain transformation that you're implementing require at the end of the day to really scale collective action, how do you think about what success for Iberostar looks like in light of that? Yeah. So it is one of the reasons why we think a lot about taking these practices and bringing them into roadmaps that boost transparency, but also hopefully provide examples to others on how it is that they could take steps to also improve. I think here's where I would say I have been continuously impressed and amazed by the broad range of businesses and incredible 
VPs of sustainability or chief sustainability officers who are trying to leverage change within their organization. But a lot of times, as I was saying earlier, ESG is be better at everything that you've never measured yesterday, right? So you're asking these individuals to try and learn so many different topics and to integrate that into the business context which is asking entire for entire business transformation is no small task, right? So it's something that we work really hard to think about how any of this information can be turned into resources. This is why on our Wave of Change website, we have our roadmaps, but we also are looking to, and actually this year, transform Wave of Change into something that can be more of a platform to pull some of these resources together and allow others to see the ways in which we're integrating the suites of KPIs that are not standard that are required in order for us to measure some of these some of these actions, the success of some of these actions, or to see the ways in which we're thinking about prioritizing limited resources, because that at the end of the day is ultimately the challenge, right? Where do you place capacity in a capacity limited environment? But what I think is also important too is this focus on pre-competitive collaboration, which again is always the buzzword, but is really hard to do in practice for a number of reasons. And one in particular is that I think it is often just really difficult to justify that it's anyone's job to do pre-competitive collaboration in their day-to-day because they have all of these suites of objectives that they need to be completing and joining that discussion or working to give feedback on a document is usually the volunteer time of these individuals. And so we make it a focus within our department and community to say part of our job is to try and take what we are doing and bring them to other forums so others can start to see those practices and ask questions around this We have a model now that we're bringing into the work that we're doing on destination stewardship, where we're hiring destination stewards in the places that we're working, whose primary function is to facilitate these sorts of pre-competitive collaborative discussions at the scale of destinations in order to work on some of those scaled solutions. But it's really difficult. And moving from the call of we need more collaboration to how that works in practice requires wearing a lot of hats and speaking many languages from NGOs to governments to businesses to be able to find common ground and find the ways in which we can coordinate limited resources towards solutions. Megan, I'm so impressed by Ibira Star's leadership in this space. And one of the terms that has been thrown around a lot more recently is nature positive, and you use this yourself, but there's still lack of consensus or clarity on what that actually means. And so as a leader in this space, I'd love your definition of what nature positive means. What does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think in communication broadly, and this is one of the challenges that we have as, or at least that I have as a scientist, right? Which is to think, well, what is the definition of this and how do I apply this? And what is the context in which this definition is applied, right? And the more and more that I do this work, the more and more that I realize that I think there is no that maybe it's not as productive to give a clear-cut definition because it might stifle the innovation of getting people started in the first place. And let me back up here and say, well, I can tell you what nature positive means for us at Iberostar and what it could and should mean for the hospitality sector. 
a couple of thoughts come to mind. The first is that you would think that travel and tourism should be the industry that is the most biodiversity excited industry out there because it can literally drive our product, right? There's great studies that say a shark in Palau is worth 80 times more alive than dead because of the tourism revenue it brings in when people go diving versus thinning the shark in a seafood industry, right? But biodiversity in tourism is still a concept that we're not really connecting and we're trying to build consensus on. And But, you know, I do think this is one of the reasons why travel and tourism should be playing a really important role in discussions with CBD and discussions on how we protect 30% of the planet by 2030 and more. And so there's kind of that side of things for where I think travel and tourism should play a role in biodiversity protection more broadly. And for Iberostar in particular, you could see that the beach is the product of why people come to vacations in the tropics and biodiversity and the nature is a really core component of that. And so all of the strategy that I've mentioned that goes into the work that we do in coastal health, which is focusing on these nature-based solutions and on ways that we lean into right, like the nature-based solutions, not just the gray infrastructure or the technology to help us boost adaptation or to do climate mitigation in any of our destinations. But the reason why I say we should be more generous in some of these definitions is because regenerative and resilience and nature positive is something that I think should be the catalyst to get people to just start doing, right? And start doing with good guidance. And there should be transparency and reporting and audits to make sure that we're doing things for the collective good. You know, I certainly think that there's a greenwashing challenge that we do need to ensure that we're handling really carefully in order to not lose the power of that consumer focus on what it is that businesses can do. But I also think that it's really hard to get businesses to start. And once they start, we give them more and more specific definitions that make the target get further and further away. And that can be really challenging in terms of innovation, right? And spurring innovation, which is really what we need to unlock the best bits of the private sector to help us drive a lot of these solutions. So, you know, we've got things like TNFD and SBTN. We've got integrations into uh, the new legal frameworks in the European Union that bring in biodiversity into the picture. But I think that we also need to be really careful in, on ensuring that we can also find ways to get more businesses moving because regulation alone or getting really stringent about these definitions could potentially stifle some of the urgency and speed that we need in order to unlock the best of all of these collaborations. But those are maybe some more controversial thoughts on nature positive more generally. Just to jump in really fast, um, TNFD, Task Force for Nature Related Financial Disclosure, and SBTN, Science-Based Targets for Nature. And it's interesting, Megan, that you say about the balance between disclosure and reporting and transparency and actual doing and innovation. I was speaking with a sustainability officer recently who said that their job has changed from mostly driving transformation and working cross-functionally to reporting and go less of the doing and more of the reporting. And so I think there is a balance there and and maybe unintended consequences of the focus of disclosure and trying to find a good balance of that is it will be critical for the sustainability community going forward. Yeah, it's a funny thing because so we work 
very closely with our finance department in our reporting, right? Which makes a lot of sense because a lot of the reporting is actually based off of the financial disclosures that are audited that a business has. In this process, our finance team has gotten more and more into the details and weeds. I would bet that they feel like currently the landscape of environmental and social and governance reporting is more complex than the financial disclosures. Maybe it's a bit of experience and practice, but also I think it is really based on the fact that we want to be measuring so many suites of areas, but it is really hard to both agree upon what those KPIs should be and yet actually have the technological infrastructure or the human capacity infrastructure to be collecting this information in the first place. It's a balance that I think we do really need to be very careful around. Otherwise, a lot of these roles are going to be focused on reporting. And I can tell you very quickly that reporting takes a lot of time and we need to balance that with action, right? Over-reporting can come at the cost of action. And this is definitely a concern that I have. You talked just a moment ago about the relationship between hospitality and conservation and the obvious ways in which it can be reinforcing if done well. But there are also examples to the contrary where business growth can be at odds with restoration objectives. And so I'm curious if you could speak to this question of trade-offs. Are there unavoidable trade-offs or at what point do we have to you know, ask the question of how many people should be visiting a certain ecosystem for it to remain sustainable? Yeah, it's a really important question around carrying capacity and the value of tourism and the value of any goods or services in in just sort of more broadly consumption and pathways towards safe and equitable living spaces for everyone on the planet, right? And, you know, we get to that point because I think there's definitely examples of horrific overextensions of planetary boundaries and destinations of horrific abuse of environment or of local communities that are part of the travel and tourism industry that are important to get to the root at and to understand how it is that we ensure overexploitation is something that is not a common word that is associated with the travel and tourism sector more broadly. But I think at the end of the day, and this is some of the work that we're doing through a number of different aspects, part of it says we need to get as closely as we can to the understanding how these businesses function. Travel and tourism is a really interesting and unique industry. It's a difficult industry to organize. And sometimes you can actually think of it as a suite of different industries coming together to make an experience. You can imagine that the kind of business that an online travel agency is, like Booking in, or Expedia, is a very different kind of company than aviation, is a very different kind of company than transportation, really different company than hospitality. And even within hospitality, we have a wide-ranging set of business structures from the mom-and-pop, small bed-and-breakfast, to Airbnbs, to hotel chains that have strong ownership over their properties at geographic scale like Iberostar. But most of the room nights in hospitality are run through franchises where you have a brand that has brand standards but the standards are enforced in a building that was not constructed by them, that is not owned by them, and in many cases, that's not even managed by them. So it becomes really difficult to be able to kind of take these collective actions and bring them down to the scale of actions that are taken in any given destination. 
So this is why, at least in travel and tourism, but I think that there's also lessons that we can bring to many industries. So much of what we need to do is to govern communities at a level that makes sense for people to get involved in in their day-to-days, right? So the level of governance probably needs to be less than international, probably needs to be less than national, probably needs to be at the scale of of what you might consider your community. And for us in tourism, that's a destination. And this is why destination stewardship and destination management plans are a really important part of this. Travel and tourism right now is working on trying to bring in a trustee at the Travel Foundation. And the Travel Foundation has this great philosophy on what they call their optimal values framework, which is what is the value of tourism to the people who live in the spot that you're visiting? And how do they help to determine what tourism should look like for them, keeping in mind planetary boundaries. And I think this is ultimately part of what we're trying to bring in this dialogue to try and correct some of those issues of overcapacity and the burden that tourism can bring to a lot of destinations. That's so interesting. Thank you, Megan. Zooming in a little bit, we'd love to hear you walk through a specific project that you all have pursued in the nature-based solutions arena. And we'd love to hear where how did you source this project and originate it? How do investment decisions within Ivarisor get made? And what some of your sort of learnings from doing one of these projects end-to-end has been like? Yeah, really great. So I can speak to the work that we're doing on the nature-based carbon compensation side of things. And so a couple of things come into the picture. The first is that we, as part of travel and tourism, had a whirlwind of the last couple of years. And certainly the industry broadly was heavily impacted by by the pandemic. We lost, the industry at large lost a lot of talent when we needed to furlough or reduce our operating costs during that period. Fortunately, at Iberostar, it was actually a period of growth for us to really think very deeply about the strategy. So most of the work that we have been doing is doing our kind of landscape to be able to think through the strategic partners and the models that we need to be working on in order to scale these solutions throughout time. And this is where I would say further that one of the things that I'm sure you guys have discussed in other podcasts and other areas is that this sort of very multifaceted, slow investment in projects that are as focused on community engagement as possible is an important element to highlight when thinking about natural climate solutions, particularly when we are also kind of parts of these destinations. So we've been working and courting for quite some time a co-management that has been incredibly interesting to get into the details of a country's nationally determined contributions and how their Paris agreements account for certain amounts of carbon and how we can really demonstrate additionality in existing protected areas by working on further investing in both restoration, but also more effective enforcement of any of these protected areas. So that's one of the areas in particular that we're working on closely and and trying to find viable solutions. Our closest project that is on the docket is work that we're doing in Mexico with a group called Amigos de Xiancan for, and they've done a lot of really great work on payment for environmental services and water in the Yucatan Peninsula. And now we're transferring that to focus in on how we could do payment for ecological services where we have a landowner and a project manager and a verifier of any of these projects in Mexico. But again, Mexico is a really interesting landscape because we're focusing on coastal carbon and mangroves are federally protected species. So we need to think really critically about 
on ensuring that we're both permitted to be able to do this work and also really adding value and additionality. We're also looking at the ways in which coastal carbon in potential marine protected areas could play a role because this sounds to be an area where we might be able to add value in the carbon space. But I think a lot of us are finding broadly that a country is going to determine a lot on how the rhythm of any of these projects move forward. We also have another project in the south of Spain in major wetland area, which is one of the first projects in the European Union that's focusing on blue carbon or on carbon sequestration projects that we're doing in collaboration with a number of partners in the public sector in that region. And so these projects that are focusing on kind of a broad set of very locally defined networks of partners is our approach. And what I have been working on as well within the context of the organization is to say, when do we start and why do we start counting the carbon, right, towards our objective of reaching carbon neutrality by 2030? Because there's actually a business case that manifests when you say, if the count starts in 2030, then any of the investment that we make in the eight years leading up to that point can either go towards the decarbonization side of things, right? Or preparing projects that are really, really financially viable for us to both manage and then eventually reduce that investment as we continue to decarbonize our supply chain years into the future. And so I kind of ideally would like for us to, to really be very cautious on when it is that any projects go online and we start counting the carbon towards our target prior to 2030, because we also really want to make sure that any of that investment can be directed strategically as we work towards that goal. But I think across the board with a lot of these projects, they are incredibly complex and you really need to make sure that you've got good, viable, long-term partners for healthy financial models that also bring the social value and the biodiversity protection into it. And so those are three examples of projects that we're working on at the moment that are in our nature, climate, natural climate solutions space. Thanks so much for laying out the complexity and the thoughtfulness of these different projects. And you alluded to the critical role that community engagement and trust plays in nature-based solutions. We've also heard similar themes from other guests on the podcast, and I'm curious to get your take on what are the strategies that are uh, important for building trust? You mentioned working with local organizations. Are there others? And what advice would you have for other sustainability leaders who are hoping to engage in nature-based solutions in a more hands-on way? Trust. It's a really great word. I would say it's probably one of the most important and undervalued currencies that we definitely need to be practicing and investing in because there's definitely nothing moves as fast as the speed of trust, right? And trust can take a very long time to build, but trust can also move relatively quickly depending upon the context of the situation at hand. And trust is definitely incredibly difficult when it comes to a business, right? A business is different than a person or a representative within that business. Trust is something that we talked a lot about with the fishing community that we are working with in Jamaica to establish the marine sanctuary, right? Like it, it was most of that project was rebuilding trust with this community that was skeptical about what it is that hospitality was trying to do, particularly in trying to establish a sanctuary that altered fishing practices, right? 
So I think one of our first steps was to put a representative and to build relationships. And, you know, in the relationship building, this is why we have coastal health managers who are focused in on making sure that we've got the right partners and the right capacity at any of our given locations to maintain the conversations that are necessary to ensure that resources are flowing in a way that values and respects the trust of those sorts of partnerships. But I think trust ultimately is built on transparency and clear intent and integrity of the individuals that are making up any of these agreements. But it also needs to rest on the capabilities of any of those individuals, which is why we also needed to hire talent that came outside of traditional hospitality roles. It's hard to trust someone who maybe has a really broad management experience in the hospitality sector. But when you're talking about managing a marine sanctuary, you want someone who's maybe had more experience in those areas. So we have folks who have PhDs or who come from NGOs or who are working in a broad range that bring that legitimacy. But above all, the most important part of trust, in my opinion, are the actions, right? You need to, if you say you're going to do something, you need to be able to demonstrate that over and over again. And the results that come from those commitments is the most important part, which is why I kind of bring back to the action. We need to value action that is as in as positive a direction as possible, as much as possible, because this is where we're able to really demonstrate that trust is to say, you know, if we're taking progress on some of these really big objectives, we're going to be really transparent about some of the challenges and barriers and blockers to reaching those objectives. But we want to do so not at the cost of taking the steps that we need to take to try and do what we can to electrify our hotels or to work on altering our supply chains to bring in more sustainable seafood. Um, And so those actions are probably above all one of the most important components that then facilitate speed of scale, right? Because once you have trust in a lot of these partnerships, things can move a lot more efficiently. Megan, this has been just an absolutely fascinating and incredible perspective that you've given us from your experiences over the last couple of years. We are approaching the end of our podcast today, and we'd love to ask you one final question, some advice from you, and and really aimed at, you know, we'd be curious to hear your wisdom for two different audiences. The first is, what do you wish your sort of peer corporate sustainability leaders knew about nature-based solutions? But secondly, we'd also just be, we'd love to know for folks who are interested in following in your footsteps and taking a similar path, how would you counsel them to do that? Hmm, What do I wish my peers in corporate knew about nature-based solutions? I think probably the first is that we're still trying to figure out exactly what that means in the scientific community. So it's okay to be a little bit confused, but definitely just try to do your best to see how best nature-based solutions could fit into your business context, right? If nature and biodiversity engages your employees, if it's something that is a core part of your product in order for you to protect biodiversity for the long-term viability of your business, then these are really great ways for you to justify diving into this topic more deeply. I also wish that folks knew that nature-based solutions could help to boost resilience of the business's bottom line and not just be really important and incredible stories of engagement for employees and clients, right, that nature-based solutions provide services, not just narrative. And that's probably something I wish that they knew more. What do I recommend for folks who want to get in these sorts of industries? I think above all is the willingness to 
be an empathetic listener and to always build on that skill set because I will tell you from the very get-go of this journey, I was concerned as a scientist to enter into a world of hospitality. I thought about golf courses and nutrient over pollution and dying coral reef ecosystems and quickly realized that a lot of these assumptions were painting things black and white when there's actually just a whole lot of gray. (laughs) And taking away some of those assumptions to be able to be as empathetic of a listener as I could be and to always kind of continue to work in that perspective has really demonstrated to me that everyone's got some solution that is necessary for us to piece all together in order to drive collective action. And for those that are what I could say, it's great to have a breadth of experiences and that you can jump tracks and go from being a marine biologist to being a a business leader. And that definitely brings and drives important experience. But I think you can gain so much experience just by, by really kind of diving into the experience of others and learning from them, whether they're your head of procurement, or whether they're the folks who are doing technical assessments in a biodiversity indicator in an NGO, there's always something to definitely learn on how it is that we can work together to drive collective solutions. Because I think there's finding that added value is where innovation comes into play. We definitely need a lot more innovation when it comes to scaling solutions. Amazing. Wonderful advice. So we have finally made it to the final moments of the episode, the lightning round, which is a very rapid fire set of questions to conclude this conversation. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First up, what is your favorite carbon sink? I probably should say mangroves, but I'm getting very excited about soil. Ooh, a surprise answer. What is your favorite book? Favorite book? Oh, I have many. One that comes to mind is Manifesto for a Moral Revolution by Jacqueline Novogratz. Really great topic on moral imagination, which is similar to what I was just talking about, the empathetic listening. I would absolutely second that. A wonderful read. If you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale natural climate solutions? Instantaneous, effective, cost-effective measurement of how much carbon there is in a natural ecosystem. Love it. Love it. Put a lot of people out of business. What gives you hope? Innovation and perspectives that surprise you from places that you wouldn't expect then. I love it. And the final question is, what is your prediction for the biggest headline of 2023 on the topic of nature-based solutions? Either what you think will happen or what you hope would be a headline in this year. What I think will happen is hopefully actions from CBD and integration in a meaningful way of what biodiversity should mean for the world broadly. What I hope will happen is that we do so in a way that gets us closer to clarity than it took us for the climate issue, because I think it's easy for us to say, oh, CO2 is really easy to measure But it took us a very long time as a scientific community to give clear messages about climate action. And what I hope is that we can get to that for biodiversity faster than we did for carbon. Amazing. And for listeners, CBD is a convention on biological diversity. Megan, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. This has been a wonderful conversation. And as we said, the first episode where we're diving into the topic of corporate sustainability, but hopefully not the last. And we're very excited to also just follow you on your journey. Very inspiring. Thank you again for joining. 
Thanks so much for the discussion. Really fun. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.